0: All right. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. It's good. Uh, We're going to be in uh, John chapter 11 this morning. So we are continuing our series through the book of John. We've been walking through John uh, since the summer, and this is actually going to be the last week that we're in John for 2020. Uh, We're going to be taking a break uh, from John, and we're going to be doing Advent um, the, over the next four weeks. So starting next week, we'll be doing Christmas in Isaiah. So we're going to spend four weeks in Isaiah, looking at how uh, Isaiah points towards the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so we're excited to jump into that with you guys. And then uh, in the new year, we'll be picking back up with John, and we'll we'll work through the second half of the book of John. But this morning, we'll be in John chapter 11. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 16. We're going to be looking at really all the way through verse 44. Uh, It's kind of one story, uh, but I'm just going to read verses 1 to 16 to start this morning. Uh, So I'll read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Uh, If you have your Bible, I'd really encourage you to follow along in. The Bible in uh, so that you can read along and see uh, God's Word for yourself there in the text. Uh, if you don't, it's okay. We do have the words on the screen behind me, and so you can follow along there as well. All right? So here's what God's Word says. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word does not return void. Um, So I pray now, God, that as your word goes forth, as it's read, as we study it, as we read it, that you would speak to each and every person here in this room, that you'd soften hearts, give us ears to hear, God. Um, Lord, it's not anything that I have to say. It's not my commentary on the Word that can change anyone's heart in here. It's Your Word itself. So, God, please be faithful uh, to do that. God, please draw people to Yourself here this morning. I pray, Lord, for, that You would encourage Your saints, encourage the church this morning, God, as we uh, as we read about the glorious victory that we have in Christ over death through His resurrection and Lord I pray that for anyone here who's not born again God for anybody here who does not have this certainty of eternal life that today that they would see that that is found in Jesus alone and that they would put their trust in you Lord I pray that in Jesus name amen Okay so in this passage that we just read there are two seemingly irreconcilable facts Number one, we read that Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. We read that, in fact, three times, basically, we're told how intimate this relationship was. In verse 2, John says that he wants to point out to us that it was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. So what he's trying to say is these people were really close to Jesus. And then in verse 3 says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then, right there in verse 5, we read once again, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, you know, John is bending over backwards to tell us how close these relationships were, right? Jesus loved Lazarus. But, there's also another fact in this passage, Jesus let Lazarus die. It says that In verse 5 and 6, it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he ran as fast as he could to go stop Lazarus from dying and he healed him. Nope, that's not what it says, does it? What does it say? It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. In other words, he didn't do anything. So, the two seemingly irreconcilable facts that we see here are that Jesus loved Lazarus, but Jesus let Lazarus die. Now, clearly, the characters in this story also had a hard time understanding what Jesus was doing here. I mean, you just look at the reactions. The disciples, on their part, are just plain confused. Lazarus is. Sickness is really the least of their worries. They're, they're afraid that, that Jesus himself is going to get killed if he goes back to Judea, and they're also afraid for their own lives. And Jesus kind of responds to them. He says, It's still daytime when it's time to work, and nighttime won't come until I say it's time. So, that analogy that Jesus is using when he says it's still daytime is he's saying, My ministry's not finished yet. While I'm here, it's still daytime, and the nighttime hasn't come yet. And it's not going to come until I say it's time to come. And so basically, Jesus is saying, I'm not worried about dying, guys. And you shouldn't be either. But the disciples are still confused. They don't understand. And Mary and Martha also express some confusion. Look at verses 21 to 24. So after a couple of days, Jesus goes to Bethany, and Lazarus has already been dead for four days, and Martha meets Jesus in verse 21, and she says, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So when Martha says to Jesus, If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died, that's that's not a, a jab At Jesus, she's actually expressing confidence in Jesus that, like, I know that you could have healed him if you would have just been here. And even in her bereavement, she still expresses faith. She says, Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she doesn't even fully understand what what God could do, but she holds out hope. She still has trust in Jesus, and yet she doesn't fully understand who he is. She's not fully aware of the power of the one who's standing in front of her. The crowds also doubt Jesus' love. We see in verse 33 to 37, look at this. It says that when Jesus saw her weeping, Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So the implication from these skeptics is that if Jesus truly cared, he wouldn't have let this happen. I mean, didn't this guy just heal the blind man two chapters ago? Why couldn't he have come and stopped Lazarus from dying? I don't really think he cares about Lazarus. I don't think he loves Lazarus. There's many, there were many people in the crowd who were doubting whether Jesus cared at all. Now, like the characters in this story, you know, I think we also struggle with doubt, and we don't understand why God allows suffering or death to touch our lives. Can I get an amen on that? Anybody else? Every one of us has felt this. I mean, maybe you've asked questions like, why is God letting this happen to me? Or why isn't God answering my prayer? Or why has my suffering been prolonged for so long? If God really loves me, then why would he put me through such tremendous pain? Have you ever asked those questions? Maybe you're asking them right now. It's hard to reconcile how something so tragic like the death of Lazarus could be a part of God's plan, isn't it? It's hard to understand that. And I'll tell you what, if you're not asking those questions right now, I can guarantee you that people that you know are asking them. So how are you going to answer them when they ask you? Now, I suppose one way we could try to reconcile this difficult question is to let God off the hook, so to speak. We could say that evil and suffering are never a part of God's will, that God is strong, but there's evil and suffering in the world happening, and he's there's not really anything he can do about it. He doesn't want it to happen, but he's given us free will, and so things are just kind of running, you know, uh, you know, as they do, and God is helplessly looking on, and just hoping that one day he can make the best of it. But the problem with this resolution, saying that that evil and suffering are never a part of God's will, the problem with saying that, is that. It's not in alignment with Scripture. <laughs> I mean, right here in John 11, it's really clear that Jesus could have stopped Lazarus from dying if he had chosen to, but he didn't. And God's Word is filled with passages that teach that God is sovereign over everything that happens, even including the decisions of people. For example, Proverbs 20:24 20, says that man's steps are ordered by the Lord. Proverbs 16.9 says that a man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Remember when Job lost all that he had, his possessions and his children, what did Job exclaim? He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Job 121. Or after about Joseph, after being sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused, spending years and years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, he said to his brothers when he reunited with them, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God meant it. This was no accident. This didn't take God off guard. It wasn't surprising to him. God purposed it and ordained it. So the Bible does not present a God throwing up his hands in frustration at the evil in the world as he helplessly looks on, trying to figure out what to do. God is sovereignly in control of all of it. He's ordering it according to his own purposes, even if we don't always fully understand those purposes. So we can't resolve the tension of how God could love us and at the same time allow death and suffering to touch our lives by saying that he's powerless to stop it. That's not the answer. We need a better answer. We need the truth. And John chapter 11 contains that better answer. And it's a gloriously better answer. I want to show you this morning the surprising way God reveals his love and the surprising way that God reveals his power in the midst of death and suffering this morning, okay? The way that God loves us and the way that he demonstrates his power over evil are surprising. They're not like we would expect and maybe even not like we'd prefer, but far better than we could ever plan for ourselves. So let's talk about the surprising way that God loves us. And and I, and I chose that specifically, that, that phrase specifically. I say the surprising way that God loves us because the way that we expect God to love us is by stopping the suffering in the first place, right? Like just don't even let it happen. We want God to heal Lazarus. Mary and Martha had a plan. They wanted Jesus to prevent Lazarus' death. That's why they sent messengers to go tell Jesus, hey, he whom you love is ill. The implication is come quickly and heal him so that he doesn't die. That's what they're asking him. That's Mary and Martha's plan. But that's not what happened. And yet, look at what we're told is the reason for this. We're given the reason. There's two reasons. In verse 4 and verse 6. Verse 4, we read this. It says that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So what's the purpose for the illness? Number one, it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But there's a second purpose in this illness. Look at verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, or you could also, we could put the word therefore. That word so means therefore, because Jesus loved Lazarus and his family, what? He stayed two days longer. He let him die. Because he loved them, he let Lazarus die. That's what we're reading there in verses 5 and 6. So the two reasons that Jesus let Lazarus die were for the glory of God and because of his love for Lazarus and their family. So there are. So if those are the two reasons that Jesus let this happen, then there's a couple of implications. For the first implication is that there is something more loving that Jesus could give Lazarus and his family than healing. There's something more loving he could give them than healing. The second implication is that this gift of love that Jesus is going to give will bring him great glory. Jesus will be glorified in this greater gift of love, the gift that's greater than healing. Now, at this point, the big question that's looming over us is what could Jesus possibly give that is more loving than saving Lazarus' life? I mean, death is the end of the road. If you're dead, then what else could you give me that could possibly do me any good if I'm dead? The answer is that Jesus gave them the revelation of himself and his glory. Jesus wanted to reveal who he truly was to Lazarus and his family. Look at verse 25 and 26. Jesus is talking to Martha Martha says, I know that Lazarus is going to rise again and the resurrection on the last day. Basically, that was the, the first century Jewish version of saying, oh, he's gone to a better place. He's dancing with the angels. You know, we'll see him one day. All these little platitudes that we tell ourselves at funerals to make ourselves feel better. That's what she's saying. Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. I know that, I know that you have faith. But what I'm trying to say is that, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus was revealing who he was. I'm not just a great prophet. I'm not just somebody who can give you life. I am the resurrection and the life. I have life in myself. I've come from the Father. I've existed. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The Word made flesh standing in front of you. And then, as if telling her wasn't enough, jesus the reason Jesus let, her die, let Lazarus die was because He wanted to show them that He's the resurrection and the life. So what does Jesus do? He says, hey, I want you to roll away the stone. And Martha says, Lord, He's been dead for four days. He's already going to smell... Terrible. We can't roll away the stone. Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they roll away the stone. The stone is rolled away. Look at verse 43 and 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, I want you to think about something with me here. If Jesus had given Martha and Mary what they wanted, it would have been less loving. They would not have been able to see this revelation of His glory and power over death. They would not have come to know Him personally as the resurrection and the life. And there are times where God will withhold what you want to give you what you need. There are times. I will, bro. There are times God will withhold what you want to give you what you need. Especially if that thing that you want will get in the way of you knowing and treasuring him. So listen to me. If your treasure is money, or good health, or marriage, or your body image, or your career, if those are the things you value most, then when those things get threatened or taken away, you will question God's love for you. Like the crowds, you'll say, if God really loved me, he wouldn't put me through this pain. Or He would have answered my prayer. Or He would have healed my loved one. But when Jesus is your greatest treasure, then anything that gives you more of Jesus, even suffering, is gain. Suffering is often used by God to wean us off of the world and to help us find satisfaction in Him, to help us see that there's nothing greater for us than Jesus. I uh, quoted Robert Murray McShane last week. He was um, a young Scottish pastor and preacher who died at the age of 29. He wrote this. Uh, he struggled with, with bad health for much of his life and died at a very young age. Uh, he was very sick for most of his ministry. And he wrote this. He said, Sometimes in health, the word does not touch the heart. The world is all. Its gaieties, its pleasures, its admiration captivate your mind. God sometimes draws you aside into the sickbed and shows you the sin of your heart, the vanity of worldly pleasures, and drives the soul to seek a sure resting place for eternity in Christ. Oh, happy sickness that draws the soul to Jesus. (laughs) Isn't that an amazing quote? Is there something painful in your life that God is not taking away? Are you enduring suffering? I want you to know that God has good purposes in your trials. You know Romans 8.28. Many of you do. It says that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Now, we love that verse, but let me remind you of two things that that verse does not say. It does not say that all things will work out like we want them to. Okay, Like Mary and Martha, you may have a plan for God, But God has his own plan. Their plan was for Jesus to heal Lazarus, but Jesus had a better plan. So do you trust God enough to let him determine what's best for you? The second thing that Romans 8, 28 does not say is it doesn't say that all things are good. It says that God will cause all things to work together for good, but it doesn't mean all things are good. It doesn't mean suffering is good. It's not good that Lazarus died. Jesus wept for a reason. Jesus was brokenhearted over the sin and over the suffering in the world. Cancer is not good. Chronic pain is not good. Crippling depression and anxiety are not good. They are evil. But God causes all things to work together for good. Think about it like this. I've gotten, since, uh, since COVID hit, uh, I got really bored back in March and April, like many of you did, and so I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna start cooking a lot more, right? And now I pretty much cook dinner every night uh, at our house. I'm not taking credit or anything. I'm just saying I've gotten pretty good at it. I like it. I know my wife likes it too. She's she loves not having to cook. So so I like cooking. I enjoy cooking, and I I enjoy baking. And when you bake a cake, there are there are sweet ingredients that go into baking a cake, and there are bitter ingredients, right? Like there are, there are, you know, things like sugar are delicious, but I don't recommend that you take a fistful of baking soda and eat that or flour, right? That's not going to taste very good. But when they're combined, according to the recipe, the end result of these bitter and sweet ingredients is a delicious cake, right? So God ordains both bitter and sweet things in our lives, but they are not accidental. He is purposing them for his glory and for our good. And this is all over the Bible, guys. This is not just John 11. All over Scripture. Think about when God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus, right? Why did he harden Pharaoh's heart? So that he could demonstrate his power over the gods and the idols of Egypt to his people. He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could bring his people through the Red Sea and they could watch the Red Sea collapse in on their enemies and they could experience God's deliverance. Or the betrayal of Joseph by his brothers. God ordained that all of that would happen, right? So that God could ultimately provide for Joseph and for his family. Or Daniel in the lion's den. You know, God ordained that Daniel would be falsely accused and thrown into a lion's den so that God could demonstrate His power to the king of Persia and to Daniel. Or Paul and Silas, who were falsely accused at Philippi, and then they were thrown into prison so that they could preach the gospel to the Philippian jailer so that God could deliver them and they could start a church a church in the house of the Philippian jailer. Over and over and over, God ordains things that are oftentimes difficult for us to go through, suffering and even death for His glory and for our good. So don't keep looking at your circumstances as the evidence of God's love, because God's love toward us is revealed in surprising and superior ways. Ways that we never could have thought possible. We don't need to question His love because we already know He loves us. He's most clearly demonstrated it at the cross. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. Now, there is a question that some of you may be thinking, and that's this. And it's easy to see in hindsight how Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they got to see firsthand Jesus' glory and power. It was a happy ending, right? But what if there's not a happy ending for me? What about those who don't get healed? What about those who don't get raised? This leads us to the second point. The surprising way God demonstrates His power. Here's the answer to that question we just posed. The resurrection of Lazarus is not just good news for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It's good news for you and for me. It's good news for every single believer. Why? Because this sign, just like every other sign that Jesus performed isn't ultimately about the miracle itself or the healing itself. Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus points to something greater. It points to two things in particular I want to share with you that are very relevant to us and to our suffering. First, Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus was pointing ahead to his own resurrection from the dead. Lazarus' resurrection wasn't the real happy ending. Because, think about it, the poor guy had to die again. You do realize Lazarus died again, right? Like, he didn't, when he called Lazarus out of the grave, Lazarus didn't just live forever. Lazarus died again. So, that can't be the the purpose. If that's the purpose, I mean, God could give us all the healing we want. God could heal you of your disease, He could heal my chronic back pain that I've been dealing with. But guess what? I'm still gonna die. So, we have a greater need than just healing here and now on this earth. See, Lazarus' resurrection was a foretaste pointing to the real victory. It was pointing to the gospel. Here's the reality for every one of us. The curse of death for sin hangs over every single person. God gave us life. He's, he's given us the breath we breathe, but we have spurned Him. We've dishonored Him over and over and over again. We've, we we've How many times? in your life? Have you known what God wanted you to do? You've known God's commands and yet you have willingly said, nope, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to disregard your commands. I'm going to disregard your law. And this is not just anybody. This is a holy, holy, holy God. Mm. We deserve death for our treason of God because we worship and serve the things that God has created rather than the creator himself. Mm. You see, your real problem is not your finances or your health. Or your mental illness Those are just symptoms of the greater problem mm. Your biggest problem is What will you do when you stand before God Come on now Because if you depend on your own righteousness You will be condemned mm. Amen. Your good deeds Before a holy God Are insufficient Amen. Say that Our righteous deeds are like Filthy rags is what Isaiah says mm-hmm. Compared to the holiness of God They will not suffice On judgment day But the good news is that despite our treason, this perfectly holy God is so perfect in his love that he humbled himself. And he became flesh so that he could die taking the curse of sin and death in our place. Mm. And he was put in the grave. And there he laid for three days. Mm. But this was no ordinary man. This was the word made flesh that was in that grave. The one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He has life in Himself, so the grave could not hold Him, and the stone was rolled away. By His own power, He was raised from the dead. And His resurrection was proof that His offering of Himself as a sacrifice for our sin had been accepted. Jesus' resurrection was the seal that this was a sufficient sacrifice. The sin debt has been fully paid. Because the debt's been paid, Jesus doesn't need to stay dead anymore. It's gone. It's erased. Justice is satisfied. And since Jesus is no longer in the grave, that means that anyone who trusts in him will have their sin debt wiped away forever and stand blameless before God. And because Jesus is alive forevermore, all of us here who are united to him by faith share in that eternal life. We have life because he's alive. Oh, and did you think it couldn't get any better? Because it can. Because not only does Jesus' raising of Lazarus point to his own resurrection, but Jesus' raising of Lazarus is actually also a picture of the future resurrection of believers. Do you know that? Jesus' raising of Lazarus is a picture of the future that awaits followers of Jesus. When, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he said in verse 4, he said, this illness does not lead to death. But Lazarus did die, right? So what did Jesus mean when he said that? He, he meant that death wouldn't have the last laugh. Lazarus would die from this sickness, but he wouldn't stay dead. He would take a nap, like Jesus kind of describes it to his disciples. He would fall asleep, and Jesus was going to go wake him up. So followers of Jesus have eternal life because we're united to Christ by faith, but we still live in a broken world. And Paul says in Romans 8, to 23, that the creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Basically what Paul is saying is he's saying we're still living in a broken world and there's still pain and there's still suffering and there's still death and we're longing for when Jesus is going to return and he's going to make all things new and he's going to reverse death, and he's going to reverse sickness, and he's going to reverse all the effects that sin has had on this world. But it's not here yet. We're still waiting for Jesus' return. So our future is guaranteed, but the world is still corrupted, which means that unless Jesus comes back first, you and I one day will be put into a box, and we'll be lowered six feet into the ground. But 2 Corinthians 5.8 says that for Christians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So on the day that you take your last breath, instantly you will be in the presence of God. And upon Jesus' return, when He comes back, your body will be raised, will be resurrected, and you will be given a new and glorified body. That's why Jesus says in John 11.25, He says, Whoever believes in Me, though he die... Yet shall he live, right? That's why our physical bodies may die, but this illness does not lead to death. So death for the Christian is going to be a lot like when Lazarus died for four days and took that nap and Jesus came and woke him up. Just like Lazarus' body was in the grave and Jesus called it out, the bodies of Christians will go into the grave, but we'll be called back out. And in that meantime, until we're awaiting for Jesus to return, we will be in his presence in heaven. Not a moment will pass. There's not going to be any time where you're in like purgatory and you're in this, you know, period of waiting and you don't know what's going to happen to you or something like that. No, no, no. If you've trusted in Christ, you will be in God's presence the moment you take your last breath. And when Jesus returns, he will raise our bodies from the grave. Philippians three, twenty twenty one says this, says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, even by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And the future bodily resurrection of believers is so certain that again, I, I, you know the apostle Paul uh, again describes it in First Thessalonians 4 um, he describes believers who have died as having fallen asleep. I want to read this passage to you, too, because he was, he was writing the Thessalonians because they were concerned about some of their brothers and sisters in Christ who had died, and they were uncertain, like, what's, what's happened to them? And he said, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the certainty of our resurrection rests in Jesus' resurrection. Do you have that certainty? Are you united to Jesus? There's no question that's more important than that, than having that certainty. The way to know if you've, the you know, the way that to know if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus is to examine your life. Jesus says in John 11:26 26 there, He says, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. To live in Jesus means to have new spiritual life now. So have you been changed? Have you been born again? Believing in Jesus doesn't just mean saying, I believe. You must be born again. You must become a new creation. God transforms us. He raises us spiritually from the dead first. That precedes our physical bodily resurrection. We're made new from the inside out. So are you living a life that's pleasing to God? Are you seeking first the kingdom of heaven? Or are you chasing after things that are going to pass away? Are you living for what's going to perish? Don't just come to church because you want God to give you health and wealth and success in your business. I know Christmas is right around the corner, but Jesus isn't Santa Claus. (laughs) And that's not the type of faith that will save you. Can I just be honest with you? Don't live for things that are going to pass away. Don't come to Jesus as a means to an end. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the treasure. He's the one that your soul was created to know. Do you treasure Him above everything? Do you love Him? If you do, then that's true faith. That's genuine faith. And you can know that you're united to Him and you have life. Believers, I just want to close by encouraging you. You know, We don't always understand or see God's purposes. We started this morning by asking, how is it that God could love us, but also allow or ordain something as horrific as death or suffering? My prayer this morning is that from John 11, you've seen two truths that I believe answer that question in an amazing way. First, the most loving thing that God could give you is the gift of himself. Second, in Christ Jesus, Christians have victory over death. Death and suffering will be reversed our suffering is not final. So those two truths should make us the happiest, most fearless people on the planet. They really should. The most loving thing God could give you is the gift of himself, and Christians have victory over death. Those two things right there should change everything about the way we live and about the way that we die, about the way that we face death. Our circumstances don't need to affect our confidence in God. So, if you've been finding yourself grumbling or complaining about your circumstances or getting angry at God, then those are indicators that you are forgetting those two truths. You're taking your eyes off of them. You're putting them on your circumstances. You're putting them on things that are going to pass away. So what do you do? Repent. Fix your eyes back on Jesus this morning. Remember that He's alive and that in Christ your future is certain. I... I want to encourage you to meditate on one of my favorite passages this week. It's 2 Corinthians 4 16 to 18. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, keep in mind, the guy that wrote this endured tremendous suffering. He was beaten with rods. He was whipped with the cat of nine tails with 39 lashes five separate times. He was thrown in prison. He was shipwrecked. And yet he says all of that suffering is light and momentary, compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Even death itself is momentary for believers. It does not have the last laugh. that should change the way that we live and the way that we die. And all of this is possible because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, We're going to respond to the message today by taking the Lord's Supper together. I was reading this morning in Ephesians 1.7, it says that in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. It is the blood of Jesus that was shed for you, the body of Jesus that was broken for you, that has granted us these great and precious promises if it was not for the blood of Jesus shed for us, if it was not for Jesus laying down his life, we would not have access to this eternal life. We would not have this promise that God causes all things to work together for our good. We would not have this promise that if we have trusted in him, we're united to him by faith and we have resurrection life, eternal life. But because of his grace and his love, we have redemption through his blood. So Thomas is going to come up now and lead us in the Lord's Supper. And I want you to meditate on that. And I want you to Think about that and praise Jesus for that this morning as we take the Lord's Supper. Think about from where he's purchased you from and the promises he has purchased for you by his blood this morning.